0: Well, thank you. It's good to be here. Um, I've watched the Mockingbird website from afar with uh, modest interest because uh, I'm not a pop culture guy, and, uh, but I really think it's really important that someone's doing that. Um, and you guys are doing it really well. And that's the thing that's really impressive to me, and integrating it with Christian theology in ways that's, that works, that helps people pay attention to the gospel sometimes when they don't know they're paying attention to the gospel. So that's a really good thing. Uh, as a tip of the cap, I have one pop culture reference in my talk this morning. So, <laughs> I'm the guy at the, on the hallway when something happens in pop culture, and uh, a few months ago, it was something about Lady Gaga. And I'm the guy that goes down the hall, so who is Lady Gaga, and <laughs> what is she about, and why is she a big deal? And so, that's my relationship to pop culture. Uh, this feels a little awkward. I've never spoken from such a high place. I've never watched a talk from such a low place. So people, especially in the front row, I will not accuse you of trying to go to sleep if somewhere during the middle of the talk you have to just put your head down. I understand you're trying to avoid a visit to the chiropractor, so that's fine. Um, I really appreciated what I've heard so far from Paul and John. I, I love uh, listening to Paul. I was hoping that, that his devotions would be something like his book, and they're very much like his book. If you haven't read his book, it's Paul's devotions on steroids, so you need to read his book if you like that. I, I happen to like it very much. Uh, the other thing I like about both their talks so far is they've had this very kind of personal, warm character to them. My talks will not have that. <laughs> so enjoy that part of it. Uh, I'm going to give a more theological and biblical argument. And it won't be very practical at first. But we have 30 to 45 minutes when the talk is over for you to ask questions. I so say, what the heck is that supposed to mean? And that's fine. We'll get into details and more personal stuff there. But I want to uh, think about, uh, here we we're talking about law and gospel. Uh, there's other times when the rainbow of the Ark of Grace, there's other things to talk about. Um, like uh, forgiveness, I mean sin and forgiveness. Uh, law and gospel. um Death to life. Um, I'm going to frame it in a different way this weekend, and uh, hopefully, it will be uh, give you helpful insights as it has me. So I begin. Uh, it's actually uh, it's it is from my book, Chaos and Grace. So you're getting the world premiere of this book. It's the large argument in the book. Um, so I will be reading from the manuscript because I took the trouble to say what I wanted to say, how I wanted to say it. So I'm not going to risk the fact that I get up here and be led by the Holy Spirit and say something that I didn't mean to say, okay? So I begin with the philosophy of pornographer Larry Flint. Here's the pop culture reference. <laughs> uh, founder of Hustler Magazine, who once said this about religion. Religion has caused more harm than any other idea since the beginning of time. He expresses the feeling of many an ardent ardent secularist, and what he says makes sense, since religion traffics in the deepest mysteries in metaphysics and morals, and since it is taught and learned and practiced by sinful human beings, well, it shouldn't surprise us that the combination can be lethal sometimes. In this and coming talks, religion is not gonna come off looking very good. But I want to make it clear at the beginning that this is no screed against religion as such, for religion, like all of God's creation, is good. Unfortunately for fans of religion, the Holy Spirit is not as interested in religion as we are, and whenever he has an opportunity, he has a way of subverting it. After the church exploded on the scene, it had to attend to all sorts of religious matters. When and where to meet for prayer. Who is going to buy and break bake bread for the meetings, Who is going to manage money given to the church, and so forth. Another problem was how to take care of those who had become dependent on the church's generosity, especially the widows. As in any church, especially a rapidly growing church like the one in Jerusalem, there were a few missteps. A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the Daily Distribution access. says. The minority Hellenists were being neglected, as minorities generally are, but give credit to the apostles who acknowledged the problem and another problem as well. They couldn't both preach the gospel and serve tables, as they put it. Not exactly an example of servant leadership, but at least they came up with a solution. Appoint a church committee, give the members titles, and have them attend to the needs of the widows. That's the sort of thing religion does really well, it's always been good at that. And this religious solution apparently worked to solve the dispute. It brought peace and order to the church. It filled the cupboards of the widows. It contributed to the social well-being of church and society. We don't hear a complaint from the Hellenists again. The one mistake the apostles made was to lay hands on these deacons, which was a sacramental way of signaling that these men were now anointed by the Holy Spirit, given spiritual power and authority in a special way. That's just the thing to upset religion. And it doesn't take long for the deacons, one of the deacons, Stephen, to figure that out. Early on in in his diaconate, Stephen gets the idea that he shouldn't be spending all his time merely doing his assigned religious duties. He recognized that a grace and power was now with him, and instead of being merely religious, if he allowed that grace and power to work through him something could happen. He started performing great wonders and signs among the people, Luke says. It was his preaching, though, that got Stephen into trouble. Apparently, he not only only modeled uh, a religion transcending life, but told people not to be satisfied with mere religion. He was accused of speaking blasphemy against Moses, the great lawgiver, the temple, and God. This man never ceases to speak words against the holy place and this law, the authorities exclaim. And they note that Jesus will change the customs of Moses delivered to us. Challenging religion will more times than not get you into trouble, and this is what happened to Stephen. He gets dragged before an impromptu court, and before you know it, he's been killed by a mob. When the Holy Spirit gets a hold of people, religion usually has to take a back seat, and religion does not like to take a back seat religious people get nervous if you start suggesting that religion isn't all it's cracked up to be that there's something more important than religion religion when it becomes the focus is about bringing order and control it's about making people nicer happier better citizens it's the middle ground between belief and ze- unbelief i'm saying and zeal a safe place to have god and morality without any of the holy chaos of the spirit Back in the 60s, a book was published by the title, The Suburban Captivity of the Churches. This title is still an apt description of American Christianity that has often traded faith for religion, the life of the spirit for a life of safety. The suburbs are not the problem. This is a form of social life, uh, is not the incarnation of evil, as some people would suggest. Uh, But the suburbs do tend to shape us, as does the city, as does rural life, And given that the vast majority of churches in America are located in the suburbs, one can see one unhappy consequence of that shaping. Take one well-known quality of suburban life, safety. I live in a suburb in the Midwest where the biggest news item on the police blotter in our local newspaper usually has to do with shoplifting or a DUI or the occasional bicycle theft, Uh, murders, Rapes, robberies, and the like, very, very, very few and far between. I was in a restaurant this morning, TV up front, news, somebody got shot on one street in New York, some teenager got killed in another plate. That never happens in the suburbs, okay? These are the type of things that happen in Chicago, in New York, not Glen Ellyn, Illinois. Uh, Families escape from the insecurity of city life and move to the suburbs because, among other things, it's a safe place to live, and safe is good. Safety, though, is not a particularly high value in the Christian lifestyle. You won't find it in the list of Christian virtues or the fruit of the Spirit, but that hasn't stopped it from becoming a characteristic of much contemporary Christianity. The yearning for safety begins well enough uh, when we get tired of dealing with the world on the world's terms. At one conference, I had a chance to hear a number of Christian novelists explain why they began writing Christian romances. A typical story went like this. They wanted to share a reading experience with their daughters. So they picked up a few romance novels from Barnes & Nobles to read together. But the sub-Christian morality in the no- and novel after novel appalled them. Was it not possible to have a romantic story without illicit sex and steamy prose and questionable choices of characters, so they decided to write a Christian romance novel that protected their daughters from such themes? Or take those who are weary of the tired themes of pop music, from silly and raunchy. Uh, I mean, they move from silly to raunchy, but seemingly always having to do with romantic love or sex. And so uh, they move the radio dial to safe radio, safe Christian radio. Or take those who are just beaten down uh, with the moral pressures they face uh, at work or the untold misery of family dysfunction and who just want Sunday worship to be a sanctuary for one hour a week. Any Christian who does not get bone-tired of dealing with the world on the world's term has probably lost some human sensibility so there's no dot denying the need for sanctuaries, safe places to which we retreat, as long as those sanctuaries are places where we regroup to face danger. What happens instead is that we begin to conceive of worship, for example, and the entire Christian life as a sanctuary from the world. We start to limit ourselves to Christian books and Christian music and Christian schools and Christian colleges and Christian movies so that what we actually become afraid of the world. While Christian media and education have their place, I hope so. (laughs) My job depends on it. Something has gone seriously wrong with Christians when the world they are called to love and serve, the world for whom Christ died, becomes a place from which they try to protect themselves. Deacon Stephen wanted nothing of this sort of religion. In one of his recorded speeches, he criticized the Jews not just for faithlessness toward God, but also for their infatuation with religion, in this case, religious buildings. In his conclusion, he proclaims, The Most High does not dwell in houses made with hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of rest? Did not my hand make all these things? This was not a religious sermon. It did not attempt to make people nice or to bring peace and order to troubled souls. It did not suggest ways for people to become more socially useful to the Roman Empire. It did not contain five ways to improve marriage or to raise kids. It did not try to help people get control of their moral and spiritual lives. It simply announced the dynamic work of God in history, described how people time and again resisted that work, and worst of all, proclaimed that the troublemaker Jesus who was crucified for crimes against the state and religion, that this one is actually the righteous one. In all this, Stephen is, stands in a long tradition of prophets like Isaiah, who denounced mere religion. As we read the New Testament, we are reminded time and again that the gospel isn't about making life safe and orderly, but entails the risk of following Jesus. It's not about improving people but killing them and then creating them anew. It's not about helping people make space for spirituality in their busy lives, but about a God who would obliterate all our private space and fill it with himself. The gospel is not about getting people to cooperate with God and making the world a better place, to give it a fresh coat of paint, to remodel it. Instead, it announces God's plan to raise the present world order and to build something utterly new. When it comes to religion... The Apostle Paul has no patience to the church at Colossae, which had a special hankering to be religious rather than Christian. He wrote, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to the festival, to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on and on, uh, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason and a sensuous mind. Then goes on for another 50 words about in this way. Paul says that not only does this sort of thing actually make the moral life truly harder, it fails to grasp what the Holy Spirit is doing in and through us. The Spirit is not trying to improve our character, not trying to make us better people, but he's trying to get us to see that we're dead. We're utterly incapable of improvement. And that it's only when we're dead and see that we're dead that we have any hope. If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, Paul says, not on things that are on the earth, for you have died. And your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. In short, the New Testament teaches that this world and every life in it is a catastrophe beyond tinkering, beyond remodeling. The gospel is about the cross, which puts a nail in the coffin of religion. The gospel is also about resurrection, not an improvement, not an adjustment, not a Uh, 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 a vision of the endless cycle of death and rebirth. Okay? It's but the breaking in of a completely new life because the old life has been obliterated. It's about the Holy Spirit introducing holy chaos, the toppling of religion that has become an idol so that people can know liberation. Take worship, which takes place in a sanctuary, a safe place. Our services are crowded with cheerful tunes and inspiring sermons, with jokes from the platform and smiles everywhere, so much so that we forget sometimes that we are in the presence of God Almighty, our Maker and Judge and Redeemer. If we drive the Holy Spirit from worship by making it an occasion for mere religious edification, we forget what a dangerous place worship is. As writer Annie Dillard put it in her her book, Teaching... uh, Teaching a stone to talk. On the whole, I do not find Christians outside of the catacombs sufficiently sensible to conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we blithely, we so blithely invoke? Or, as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The children are playing. Churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill Sunday morning. It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. For the sleeping God may someday take offense and awake. And the waking God may draw us out to where we can never return. The problem... Our temptation to make Christianity a religion of order and safety begins with our failure to understand who Jesus Christ is and how, in the Holy Spirit, he continues to speak and work among us. Dorothy Sayers put it this way, "...we have very efficiently pawed the claws of the Lion of Judah, certified him meek and mild, and recommended him as a fitting household pet for pale curates and pious old ladies." To those who knew him, however, he in no way suggests a milk and water person. They objected to him as a dangerous firebrand. Why God would entrust to the church, why why he would entrust the church the risky means of grace, worship, the Bible, preaching and so forth, calling us to speak of the dangerous mercy of his firebrand son, through the mysterious power of the spirit. I have no idea why God would do that. But this God seems to be addicted to risk rather than religion, to freedom rather than control, and to love rather than law. In entrusting the future of the planet to a mercurial nomad named Abraham, in revealing his holy will to a fickle and forgetful people, in coming in the flesh to make things plain to the blind and the deaf, Who wanted nothing more than, these are the people who wanted nothing more than to murder him. This God seems oblivious to the dangers that accompany his unmerited favor. And then he has the nerve to tell us to imitate him. This is not the type of person into whose hands most people would entrust the leadership of their church. Well, except in an honorary capacity. Our our fundamental misunderstanding of religion begins at the beginning. So we need to begin again at the beginning. We need to see the creation account in light of the chaos of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. Once upon a time, at the beginning of time, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness covered the face of the deep. Thus writes the author of the book of Genesis. This account is now thousands of years old, and it's still, less it's no small amount of scientific and historical controversy and curiosity. But first and foremost, it is a God-breathed story, a story with its own inner logic. Scholars debate the exact meaning of that opening line. Is it a thesis for what follows, or is it the first act of creation? And it seems to me a simple reading is best. God has created, in rudimentary form, the sky and the earth. But the earth was formless, that is, it didn't have any land. There were no mountains and valleys, no canyons and deserts, no shapes or form, no property with a view. It was also void of plants, animals and people. No roses or thorn trees, no eagles or mosquitoes, no giraffes or black widow spiders, no pesky neighbors with barking dogs or beautiful people to admire. Not that one could have seen anything anyway, for the narrative assumes there was darkness everywhere. (laughs) And water was ubiquitous. No oceanfront property, just ocean. No tides or waves because there was no moon to pull the water to and fro. The water that covered the earth is pictured as placid as a lake at dawn. Except that there was no dawn, no rising sun, no rooster crowing, no sparrows chirping to welcome the new day. Just darkness. Darkness. And silence, not a scary darkness or an unnerving silence, for there's nothing yet to be scared of. No, quite the opposite. This was a darkness and silence that was utterly calm, like the peace of a deep and restful sleep. In the beginning was utter and complete order and tranquility. The author of the book says the spirit of God brooded over this order and tranquility and then began to tinker. The first thing he did was he created light. So now there is darkness and there is light. The creation has become dynamic. So different were they. They were given different names day and night and that was only the beginning day 1 the next day god made the sky so now a new dynamic was introduced now there was waters and the heavens the next day land was formed and a new dynamic still seas and earth so now there was night and day sky and waters earth and sea god was up to something in the middle of the 3rd day he really got going he created plants and trees and all manner of vegetation, chrysanthemums bursting with color, stately redwoods stretching to the heavens, prairie grass waving elegantly in the wind, and, we must assume, poison oak and thorn bushes and deadly mushrooms. And he gave this resplendent variety of plants and trees the ability to reproduce, to be fruitful and multiply by propagating their own seeds. And we know this ability tends to to wildness, the lush and verdant chaos of life. Having caused enough trouble for three days, God took his mind off the earth for a bit. He started tinkering with the gift wrapping, that which enveloped the planet. So he created the sun, a bright and warm thing that penetrated deeply into the skin of the planet. Then, by way of contrast, came the moon, a beautiful but distant orb that hung in the sky like a shiny earring. And then came the bow on the wrapping, stars, billions and billions of stars, This was variety gone to seed, variety on without number, a metaphysical chaos of the heavens. That was already quite a day's work. But unfazed, God turned his attention back to the planet. And he really sets things on edge. Vegetation is resplendent enough, but any plant or tree is pretty much stuck in place, confined to living in one spot for its whole life. But what if there could be a form of life that can move around on the face of the planet, that could crawl or run or jump or fly. That would be awesome. (laughs) And what if these mobile creatures didn't exist side by side, but interacted with one another? What if they absolutely depended on one another, needed each other to live, so that there was a paradoxical dynamic in which living creatures had to both pursue and be pursued, devour and be devoured by their fellow creatures in order for life to continue to explode on the planet? So God created living creatures, swarms of them, creatures in the ocean, creatures on the land, creatures in the sky, creatures, creatures everywhere, trouts and sharks, deers and wolves, robins and vultures, among others. And the number of living creatures, if you include insects, and of course we must include insects as part of God's good creation, would be at least millions upon millions, And as he did for the plants, he gave these creatures the ability to self-propagate. And just to make himself clear, God said to the creatures, be fruitful and multiply, as if instinct would have not taken over soon enough. So the planet is now one fine mess from a state of perfect peace and harmony. It has been transformed in a few short days into a lush, rich, infinitely varied cacophony of color and sound and life. This is the sort of thing that happens when the spirit of God tinkers. And God wasn't done. You'd think he'd cause enough trouble for a work week, five days of activity that left the planet in a state of holy confusion. But God decided to work the weekend. At least the first day of the weekend. He had one more idea to put on the table before he took a break. And what he did next suggests that one should not push it, that one's best ideas are not necessarily those that come at the end of a hard work week. But God went ahead anyway, oblivious to the consequences. He created people. And he created them in his image and likeness, as mischief-makers, Creatures who cannot leave well enough alone. Creatures like animals, restless and on the move. Creatures who pursue and are pursued. Creatures never satisfied with the status quo, with the way things are. Creatures born to create something new again and again. Creatures, creatures who want to plan and build and paint and carve and hunt and fish and play. And who knows what else? And if that were not enough, he created people in two varieties, male and female. Of the same flesh and blood, to be sure, but as different as as light is from the day, as seas are from the sky, as waters are from the land, of the same being and substance, but as different as Mars is from Venus. This is not an easy combination to explain. And here comes the most mysterious thing to the man and the woman, he gave the wild and unruly gift of sex. And without a warning label, without instructions. Well, except this one. Be fruitful and multiply. Have lots and lots of unprotected sex. Not exactly responsible family planning. No concerns about the woman's career or the man's freedom. No precise formula of 1.8 children. No issues with carbon footprints or affordability or the ability to spend, quality time with, to spend quality time with each child. Just the command to create little communities of chaos and love called families. Have lots and lots of unprotected sex. Now, before you couples go and make practical application of this talk, Continue to listen, please. The spirit of God, the mischief maker, was now finally through. The calm, orderly, peaceful creation, peaceful as a deep sleep, orderly and calm as a placid lake at dawn, had been turned into a variety of form, chaos of color and sound, And the you catastrophe, the good catastrophe of life, exploding in all corners, spewing forth the volcanic heat and energy of creativity and love and new life. If the spirit had been brooding when he started, he must have been smiling by the end of day six. He could finally rest knowing he'd set the world on a course from which it would never recover. In Genesis, the story is told again from another angle, but the point seems to be the same a profusion of form and life that knows no boundary or order. The man is told to name every beast of the field and bird of the heavens, a task we're still feverishly trying to complete. One imagines that the mischief-maker gave us his job as a practical joke, joke to point out that it was impossible. After all, so resplendent is his creation. Another practical joke seems to have been this. The command to work and keep the garden. Work it? Yeah. Keep it? Well, gardens are unruly things. They start off well enough with neat border framing, orderly rows of seeds and seedlings. But it isn't long before unwelcome guests, weeds are crowding in. And not long before the seedlings are pushing each other around. And then spilling over the neat rows in the borders. And then all those uninvited pests trying to feed themselves. Swarming over everything. Chewing away here and there. Make no mistake. To garden is to war to battle with life itself, which comes at you unrelentingly like an invading army. Forget to pay attention for just a few days and the enemy overwhelms you with superior forces and the garden becomes a jungle. What makes the man's task even more impossible is that he's not just given a little plot to manage in the corner of his yard like some like some uh, suburban or urban gardener. This would have been hard enough, but his garden seems to be Well, everywhere, dominion over the whole earth, as Genesis puts it. Work, Adam, work and keep everything. No wonder he needs a helpmate. But we'll see as the story unfolds that even that won't do the trick. One suspects, in fact, that this may be, this overwhelming task that they are giving, may be one thing that prompted the woman to say, well, enough is enough. The man and the woman were together keeping the garden, that impossible but joy-filled task set before them. I imagine them as children on a merry-go-round, spinning faster and faster, trying to shout to the one spinning them, stop already, but laughing so hard they couldn't get the words out. The fulsomeness of life sprung up all around them. Its variety and chaos always on the verge of overwhelming them. And when they just let it be and did freely what they were commanded to keep until the merry-go-round of life, all was well, The man and the woman were experiencing the good. This was nothing less than the life that had been handed them on a garden platter, the cacophony of meaningful labor and exorbitant life and joy. There was one thing they were commanded not to do. While delighting in the fruit of this cornucopia, that this cornucopia supplied them, they were told by God not to eat the fruit of the one tree, the one called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil things start to unravel, more or less, as, uh, I should say, things start to unravel as more or less reasonable questions are put forth. The type of questions human beings tend to ask. And these questions begin to pile up, one on top of another. The first one is, did God actually say you shall not eat any tree in the garden? It's a question that makes sense if one is exhausted perhaps at the end of another hectic day of trying to rein in the exploding chaos of the garden. It's the type of exaggeration that one is tempted toward when you're at the end of your rope. You look at the one thing you cannot have and you say, every tree in the garden might as well be off limits if I can't have the one I desire. It's petulant. It's not surprising. And the rational, rationalizations continue. You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What's interesting about that, that, that uh, statement is the series of assumptions that seem to drive it. Uh, a lot of commentators say uh, that the serpent here is lying to, the, to, add, to Eve. But actually he's telling the truth here, especially in view of the entire biblical narrative. In fact, the woman and man do not die after eating the tree. And though some years later they return to dust, the whole arc of the Bible suggests that this death was hardly the last word. God's intention for them from the beginning was life eternal with him. The eyes of the man and the woman were indeed opened. As a result of taking from the tree, they did gain a deeper and wider understanding of good and evil. This is something that complicated their lives terribly. Alternat- alternatively ennobling them and enslaving them but something that in fact began to mature them in some ways the man and the woman and especially their descendants have indeed been set on a path to become like god to become partakers of the divine nature as peter puts it which is the biblical goal for humanity so it's not so much a lie as a foreshortening of the plans of god The woman is not only curious, but she's practical and she's wise. She sees that the tree was good for food. She saw that the tree was a delight to the eyes. Finally, the woman recognized that this mythical tree could give her wisdom. And the man and the woman are in desperate need of wisdom. They have a relationship to negotiate and eventually offspring to raise and animals to name and a garden exploding with life and unimaginable energy to manage. The woman is to be commended for recognizing that she doesn't have it all together, that she needs help, that she and her man need guidance if they're going to exercise dominion. So she reached out and grabbed a piece of fruit, sunk her teeth into it, and called out to the man, Honey, come and try this. And immediately they knew something was amiss. Their eyes were opened all right. They had quickly become smarter and wiser. They recognized, for example how vulnerable they were, how exposed they were to the elements and to one another, how their sexuality was not only a sign of their unity but also their disunity. It hinted that a thing designed for mutual love might be a source of power and deception and exploitation. They also recognized that their relationship with their creator had changed. Again, they show noble instincts. They, They experience a proper sense of guilt and shame to stand before God boldly as if nothing had happened would have been a farce. And they instinctively know this. And there are consequences. But for what? Though one can see willful rebellion in their act, which is what a lot of theologians interpret this, what is more obvious on the surface is behavior that reminds me of me. And no offense intended, reminds me of you. It's a combination of weakness mixed with pride. Curiosity mixed with naivete. Righteous longing mixed with disobedience. The original sin is not grounded in the raising of the angry fist before God as much as as it is in stupidity, immaturity, and mostly impatience. For all that the woman longs for in taking the fruit is something that God intends to give them in his good time and in his way. The original sin of the man and the woman is, more than anything else, a desire to control the the timing and the process of, of their growth and maturity in God. This is indeed a type of pride and rebellion, as many theologians note, but I want us to note the specific nature of the rebellion, a desire to control the timing and process of, uh, of their growth and maturity in God. The consequences for reaching out to control that which they are not called to control uh, the consequences that God meets out for this unhealthy desire is in accord with the nature of the crime. For example, for the woman, bearing children will be more painful than ever. It's not as if pain had not been a part of childbearing from the beginning. The only difference now is that it is multiplied, the text says. In addition, it's not merely physical pain that is new. It is surely that, but physical pain becomes a negative sacrament of the suffering involved in bringing children into the world. Now the woman will know the deeper ambiguity and heartache, along with the joy and pride, of bearing and raising children and of seeing them struggle as they grow and mature, of wistfully watching them leave mother and father to cling to new mates. The woman will now also be subjected to the tension she will never be able to escape. She will yearn to be ever more intimate with her husband, but that very intimacy will feel confining to her. She will spend her days negotiating a compulsive longing for her husband and a desire for independence, both innate and good human longings that only with wisdom and maturity will finally be seen to be one and the same. But it also means something more dreary, A relationship characterized by freedom and companionship, they were helpmates to one another, now would become an oppressive hierarchy. And the oppressiveness of that most intimate of relationships would become the norm. And not just in the standard for marriage, but in other spheres as well. As Aristotle was to put it later, so it is naturally with the male and the female, the one is superior, the other inferior. The one governs; the other is governed, and the same rule must necessarily hold good with respect to all mankind. All Aristotle could see was oppression. That is, that is human nature, he says. To the man, uh, God said, "Cursed is the ground because of you." That which was to be a source of meaning and purpose—the tilling and keeping of the garden—now becomes a burden. The pleasure of labor is not removed, but now added to it is the, is a measure of ambiguity that will plague man. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread," said God. That which was designed to bring man joy would also become that which will he will dread. Life will no longer be lived merely in joy and freedom, but also in dreary predictability. It is it was characterized at first as by the word work. But now it's characterized by the word toil, with all the frustration that implies. As the larger biblical story unfolds, these so-called curses we now live under actually become blessings. All that oppresses humankind and tempts us to despair, poverty of spirit, will become the road to liberation. All that causes grief and lament, mourning, will become a source of deep comfort, All moral uh, longings that frustrate us because they seem incapable of fulfillment, the hungering and thirsting for righteousness, will become a sign of their ultimate fulfillment. But as a result of this fall, it would appear that God has now permitted another type of chaos to enter the created water, a chaos characterized by suffering and death. But this chaos, like the chaos of the original creation and the chaos of the new creation, as we'll see in Pentecost, is just another means of bringing men and women into the full freedom of the children of God. Thank you.